Isaiah 65 together this morning. Isaiah 65 is our next passage. Probably about two more sermons after today, and we will be done with Isaiah and moving into the book of Revelation. I want you to think this morning uh, about being mad at God. Maybe there is some way in which you are mad at God, or maybe you know somebody who is ministering to them. When you're mad at God, you're dealing with half of the story. God revealed himself in nature, he revealed himself in scriptures, he revealed himself in his son Jesus Christ, but in terms of the problem you might be having right now, God does not speak audibly to your situation. And so if you're walking and you've kind of sealed your heart up in a little bit of anger against God, you're probably not reading his word, uh, submitting to the spirit to apply the word. And so you have half of the story and, and there exists therefore a division that's widening between you and God. I don't, know, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've lived as old as I am, you've had enough human relationships where they, 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 they break apart due to circumstances, just circumstantially you're not together and maybe the last time you were together it didn't go so well. Other times you break off a relationship with another human being and you've just not spoken to them in a long, long, long time. And uh, if you've lived like that, you know how it can just fester, it can get worse, it doesn't Somehow it just doesn't minister to your soul when you just break it off with somebody. You think you can walk away. I think that's a lie of Satan. I can just walk away and nothing more to do. Um, but uh, th- th- there's some heart hurt that sits there and it grows. And even in your, your imagination plays tricks, you make assumptions. You imagine offenses, wondering what they really meant by this or that. You hold emotional grudges and, and you even do these Role-play arguments, arguing with this person that you haven't seen in years. Also, if you've lived long enough, you've seen a few of those broken relationships mended, uh, where circumstantially or by someone's effort, you just make the effort to reconnect. And you find on the other side somebody who is eager to reconnect. And delighted to reconnect. Where again, whether it's circumstance, whether there was an offense. And I'm not talking about getting together and re-arbitrating those past offenses. I'm talking about where you, you just kind of get together and you know, you know, can we just pick it up? And let's go again. It's a delight. And in your silence, you made all kinds of assumptions that had no grounding in truth. And um, you were just far away from that person. That's God and Israel here. They, they made some accusations. I don't know if you remember last week we were in chapter 64. If you look at verse 11, you'll see some accusations. And this week we're going to see God answering them. They had a prophet. He answered them. Okay, uh, look at verse 11 of chapter 64, Isaiah 64, 11. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. And here's the question, almost accusing God. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Now, as we start today's chapter, understand Isaiah did not write chapter breaks into his prophecies. They could have been separate prophecies, and and when when you get the Isaiah scroll, if you get a hold of that, if you go look at that in Jerusalem today, um, uh, you'll just see uh, there's not even breaks for sentences or words. It's just letters going continuously. And so somebody put in a chapter break here. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes it's a distraction. Sometimes it's unhelpful. But we have this question at the verse 12, will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And the next sentence is, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, 
to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are as smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become like become a pasture for flocks, and the valleys of Accor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down together, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who, is, who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the, truth, by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former things are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes." Now, the next passage we're going to cover next week covers the millennial kingdom uh, and, and perhaps the eternal state all kind of uh, molded together. We have just witnessed a structure of content that follows this. It was the call God said, I was calling. That was the first section. And what's going to happen is when we get to the, this next week's passage, the week after that, the argument goes exactly in reverse. It's a structure of logic that, 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 uh, that Hebrews loved and and we don't really follow much here in the United States. But you've got, basically, you've got this call. You've got judgment on the wicked. You've got the remnant who are going to be pulled out. You've got condemnation of the wicked while the remnant enjoy a kingdom. And then you go backwards to the condemnation of the wicked and the remnant that are called out. And uh, then you've got the judgment on the wicked again and the fact that God has been calling all along. So uh, through the next three sermons, through the next uh, two chapters, we're going to see that kind of structure and I think that's important because when we get to the kingdom of God stuff next week, we're, we're Western in our logic. We're like, okay, kingdom of God, give me a timeline. And as I look at that section, 
pre-read it this week, I, I, I don't see a clean timeline. I see a muddling of eternal state and kingdom stuff. And so that's why I mentioned the structure is not what you and I would want, which is a linear calendar of events. Uh, it is a, a logical structure of, of God's goodness to his people and the joys of the kingdom and the eternal state. Anyway, let's bow forward to prayer as we uh, look at today's passage together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We invite him into our heart, into this room, to open up your word in our hearts, to give us understanding of the significance of your word today for our lives. God, I pray that we would all be changed, that your word would not return void to you, that, uh, Father, I would be changed as I share your word, and each listener would be changed as they hear your word, and that, Father, your word would be very fruitful in our lives today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start in point number one here in our outlines. Again, I put the word perhaps at the beginning of the outline because I'm not sure about the chapter break, but I think really verse 1 is an answer to verse number 12 of last week's passage. Um, so perhaps in, that, in answer to that question about uh, uh, God's silence in chapter 64 and verse 12, God replies that he has been calling while Israel has been rebellious. He has been there. Uh, just reading with some comments here starting in, in verse number 1. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, that, that, when he repeats it twice, that's, that's a grammatical um, a device to say, I was continually saying, here I am, I was trying to get your attention to a nation that was not called by my name. And that Hebrew there is a little dicey. It could also be the, by a nation that was not calling on my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. And I don't think God's spreading out his hands was what? <laughs> what? I don't think that's what he, I think it was like this. I spread out my hands to a rebellious people. My arms are open to embrace you. Will you come back to me? And so uh, that's what I'm getting by the spreading out of the hands. To a rebellious people who walked in a way that is not good, following their own devices. And uh, Christian, uh, you know, when you are doing things that aren't guided and and advisable according to the Word of God, anything that, that you kind of have to hide from God and hide from godly people, that's your own devices, okay? Um, uh, things that you do out in the open that you know God is proud of and delighted in, uh, that would be the, uh, the following God's devices. Verse 3, uh, to a people who provoke me to my face continually. And, and so it, it, this is just out in the open they're doing these things. What are they? Sacrificing in gardens, okay? I'm a gardener. We're not talking about that. Okay, the sacrificing in gardens would be uh, fertility cults. They were in groves and gardens. And to go out and sacrifice in gardens was to sacrifice to the fertility gods and goddesses. And making offerings on bricks. Now, we know that bricks are not what were used. Uh, uh, unhewn stones were used to build the tabernacle's altar. And I don't even remember how the, uh, the, the bronze altar was constructed in, in Israel. But... On bricks, that's probably a reference to Molech, the god Molech, and people would offer children to Molech, usually girls and deformed babies. Uh, you know, it was, it was kind of ancient abortion uh, under the guise of some religion. But, but uh, making offering on brick could be child sacrifices. Verse 4, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. Uh, that's one of two things. Either it's necromancy, trying to gain an advantage of this life by communing with the dead, 
Or it's ancestor worship, which is kind of the same thing, honoring ancestors at their tombs, in their tombs, uh, seeking to please them so that they can either do things for you or they can talk to God and get God to do things, all kinds of thoughts. But, but basically things that are, that, are, that are forbidden in the Torah, forbidden in the law of God. Who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat and is in their vessels. We know at the very least that this is unclean. It could also be part of a very specific uh, uh, pagan worship that they knew exactly what Isaiah was talking about. You and I don't. Who say, now I don't know who they're addressing in verse number 5, because this is incredible if they're trying to say this to God. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. I can't believe that they would actually say that to God. Um, Perhaps they would. I I think more likely they were saying it to other people. Because false religion has a two-tiered system or a multi-tiered system. Uh, false religion has people worshiping who really believe that they're a little bit better than some of the other worshipers. Uh, that would be a false religion. You see, uh, a, a true Yahweh worship and true Christianity recognizes all have sin, all fall short of the glory of God, and all are saved by standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ when we place our faith in Him, and by standing in the punishment that Jesus Christ provided for our sins when he was crucified for our sins. So when we walk through the doors here today, uh, there's not like two tiers of of Christians here. Some who, man, you know, they're just a little better. (laughs) No, that would be a a sign of false religion. And and you've got to be careful as a church that you don't fall into that accidentally because you could do so, especially a small church like this. You could have the old timers and the newcomers, you know? Who's better? Well, the new, you know, new life, new life. Or the old, it's our church. We were here first. Uh, If you're a newcomer here, uh, the Holy Spirit, as we understand, the Holy Spirit builds a local church much like a body so that the the mouth, I'm probably the mouth because I get up and speak once a week, um, three times a week actually, I'm probably the mouth. The mouth cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and just cut you off. See, God gave the body a hand because it has a purpose. And so if God brought you as a new member into the church, it's the Spirit filling in a lacking component of the body of Christ here at Cornerstone Baptist Church. You're here by the design of the Holy Spirit, and and when He leads you here, there's no old-timer that can say, uh, you know, well, you know, you're kind of new, and you're kind of second tier, and so just calm down. (laughs) Don't don't expect to participate. Uh, In fact, and i got to say, our our, uh, old-timers here, uh, they have turned down many opportunities to lead and to serve in prominent ways and said, you know, we really need to hear from the new people. We really need to hear, need to hear from the next generation. And so I, I, could, I could testify as a pastor, I'm not making that comment because we're facing a problem as a church. Uh, you know, another elitism, elitism, that, that's the, another elitism in Christianity is, well, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and I'm homeschooled and just always served Jesus and... You know, this, this other person who is openly even confessing his sin and his struggles, and, you know, this other person has had a checkered past and, you know, just barely even surviving because of what they've done. So, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm of different quality, right? Well, maybe you're unsaved. Maybe you're a Pharisee. Yeah, maybe there's a division between you and him because you are unsaved. I don't know your heart. If, if when you think you trusted Jesus Christ, if that was really true or not. But if you truly think that you're better than someone else, you have a fundamental misunderstanding of your evil and your sin. That was the Pharisees who thought that. 
And Jesus said, I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. So, another Christian who's in the room who, whose sins are more open to the world and they're actively fighting sin and confessing sin, if you look down on them, there's a 50-50 chance you're just a legalist, self-righteous, self-loving legalist. Any spiritual advantage in your upbringing does not make you better. It makes you more accountable. That's a fearful truth. And pride is the opposite of showing accountability. And pride would be believing that there's something in you that's just notch better than that other person. Verse 5 is an ironic claim. They say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. Because God then says, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Have you ever been at a campfire and you know how the wind will come right at you and you breathe at the exact wrong time and it burns, right? And you immediately move, you immediately leave. Such are these people before God. So God responds to them in verse number 7, both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. So some applications we want to make here. Um, One, I would say this, be careful not to um, dress up your sin as holiness. Uh, these guys were open sinners. They were involved in pagan worship, yet they somehow found it in themselves to be elite in their attitude toward themselves, walking around as the spiritually elite in Jerusalem. They took their sin and they made it a status of spiritual elitism. Be careful. You do not dress up your sin as holiness. Our idols today aren't out in the groves and the gardens. Our idols are things. Let's take two really quick cars, houses, okay? How might I dress up my car as a spiritual sign versus a car that I might have spent too much money on, that I might love too much, that I need to pray to God as I acquire a car that he guards and shepherds my heart? Well, how I might dress that up is, well, I need a new car because I want to pick people up and bring them to church. It's a ministry, What was wrong with the old car? Well, it's old. (laughs) It's not as nice. Or I'm building a house, and so I build it bigger and more beautiful. And I say, well, you know, we just want this big house because then we can have the youth group over, and we can have the ladies over, and we can have Christian hospitality. Now, you know, hopefully you do that with your house, but you need to separate those issues. Uh, Karen and I have built a big house, and and when you're building, you're not going to make it ugly. Um, You're going to build it nice. You're going to make it as big as you probably can afford. But the whole time, the whole time, you should be wrestling with stewardship versus materialism. God does not deny you nice things, but are you living for nice things? Do they define you? And so the whole time, you're struggling like this. And, and just because you're going to use your home for Christian fellowship is not like a hall pass to go out and do what you want with this house. How we use our house is a separate question from whether we should build so big or so nice. In fact, our former house 
1,850 square feet, we had 40 people for indoor parties, and we had 220 people for yard parties. And having an 1,850 square foot house and showing hospitality can be a wonderful example to fellow believers that hospitality is not just for people with big houses. So don't dress up what might be materialism, sin, and idolatry. Don't dress it up as something spiritual. Uh, that, that would be one thing we could do. The other thing is not to dress up our self-centeredness or our own feeling of self-importance as religious. If you are pushing for what you want in your family, if you are pushing for what you want in your local church, there's often many ways to skin a cat, many decisions that could come. And unless they're in direct violation of the Bible, they're all good possibilities. It's just a matter of what God's people or God's family wants to do. And so be very careful not to grasp for spiritual categories in matters that, you know, there's just a lot of things that could be done. Don't seek for that Bible verse, that tradition, that spiritual principle that just makes your way the right way. Learn how to to represent your ideas as one among equals and do not use the Bible as a tool to get your way with others. I like what one Bible student said about verses 6 and 7. God's judgment on these people, number one, it's certain. Look at verse 6. Behold, it is written before me. This is written down. It is certain. Number two in verse 6, it's personal. I will not keep silent. God is on task with this judgment. Number three, it's measured uh, repayment for sin. But I will repay, and that verb is measured requital. It is measured payment for sin. Number four, um, it's individual in its application. It sa- he says, I will indeed repay into their lap. So, yes, there's sin. There's a general curse of sin that we live through in the earth. This is not that. This is the end time judgment, and I'm going to put it right in their lap. It's going to be personal. And then it's a final settlement. Look at the first half of verse 7. For both your iniquities and your father's iniquities, we're talking about generations of sin, it's going to be thorough. And what you have with sin is oftentimes successive generations build on the sins of their fathers. They don't repent. When they repent, that's a different story. But for this, it's talking about the generations that just continue in their father's wickedness. It's going to be a final, final settlement. And again, it concludes in verse 7, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Now, contrast that with, you know, God is talking about all this judgment, but the reality is in Jerusalem, at all eras, there's been this remnant, uh, this small group of people in the middle of this judgment, and God is committing uh, basically the whole cluster into his winepress of wrath. And so we have this uh, beautiful metaphor to refer to the remnant here, the metaphor of uh, some prime grapes in a cluster of mostly rotten grapes. Now, there's a lot of debate over the agronomy, the agriculture of grapes in antiquities. Uh, Either way you take it, the illustration is going to be the same. I take it to be a a bunch of grapes that are mainly rotten grapes due to be just, just destroyed, but there's something special about some of the grapes in the cluster, a remnant, if you will. Let's look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, 
So I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. So as we look at that, the, the, the picture is you've got a rotten cluster of grapes and, and it's like we're, we're going to, to, to destroy them. But wait a minute. There's, in that, in that eight-pound cluster of grapes um, or five pounds, there's, there's about a pound of good grapes here. Let me just grab a, a knife here. Let me clip that off. And man, set that aside. Okay, now destroy the rest. It's just, just a simple illustration, but for, for 10 seconds of work, I got a pound of beautiful grapes, right? So that, that, that would happen in agriculture, and God said, that's going to be me with the nation of Israel. There are some good grapes in that cluster. Now, he talks about doing that and not destroying them all. That's talking about eternal final judgment, the, 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 the great separation, what about the reality right now as Isaiah's writing? What's going on in Jerusalem? People are suffering. Does that fall on believers as well? Yeah, the consequences fall on believers as well. So, so for this era, for this time, we read this and we re- recognize that in God's eternal judgment, there is going to be a distinct separation. For the time being, we are a part of this larger cluster going through this, and there's consequences that do fall on us. Our prayer is, as we go through that, God, strengthen me. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Help me in this pilgrim way where I'm not at home, but I'm a pilgrim making a journey. Help me along the way. Help me, God, to be strong as your judgment falls on this land. Help me to honor you. Help me to go through this in such a way that when I'm dead and resurrected and in your presence for thousands of years, I will always look back on this time with some measure of joy. And how I responded to you. Help me to do that. And, and so that's what I'm understanding to be the, 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 the promise here, that this is um, an eternal promise. Verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become, Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor, the valley of Achor is known for Achan. He sinned after the... Uh, Jericho, he, he took some of the dedicated things, and, and, he, and, and so that's associated with his judgment, the Valley of Accor. The Valley of Accor will be a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Let's just look at where these are located. The Shron Plain is along the Mediterranean. Um, just, just looking here at, um, at uh, pictures from the BibleLandPictures.com, this is the, the Shron Plain. There you'll see the Mediterranean, gorgeous, beautiful. Um, I don't know if it's that way all year, if that's after a rain season or what, but um, that is gorgeous. Now, the, the Valley of Echor would be somewhere near, um, Jericho was down here at the tip of the Red Sea, or the Dead Sea, I mean. And, um, and so the Valley of Echor would be on one of, these, one of these foothills going up into the mountains. I, it could be the ascent of Adamim that re- goes up to Jerusalem. I'm not, I'm not really square on my geography there. I do have a picture of the Valley of Achor there. There's, um, there's the Plain of Sharon. There's the Valley of Achor. So I think what you have here is a contrast that, that, you know, both these places are going to be beautiful places to raise sheep, to let your livestock bed down and just eat to their full. I'm going to do this for my people, Israel. For the remnant, they're going to possess a land that is going to be prosperous everywhere, even in the valley of Accor. So God proclaims that there's going to be this clear separation in destiny between the wicked and his servants. And he lays that out for us in verses 11 through 16 in great detail, great detail. He says, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, 
What's it mean to forget God's holy mountain? I believe that's where you just write off going to Jerusalem and participating in the festivals. It's not just a matter that, that you couldn't make the pilgrimage this year. It's a matter you just don't. You just choose not to. I think the, 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 the most parallel thing you'd have today is where Sunday just becomes another day of the week. Going to church, you know, if, if, if you get in the habit of starting to miss, it gets easier, it gets easier, and pretty soon Sunday is no longer special. I think that's, that probably describes somebody who, um, who has forsaken uh, the Lord's holy gathering. Um, and, and so you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Um, fortune and destiny are just what they sound like. They're, they're false gods, and, and you would worship them uh, for benefit. You, know, you, you would, you would uh, set out a plate for fortune or set out some mixed wine for destiny, and, you know, just for good luck. You know, or maybe the gods will answer me. The word destiny there at the end of verse 11, that's a noun, a proper noun. That's the name of the god. The word destin in verse number 12 is a verb. It's the verb cognate of that noun. So, uh, for those who fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword. It's pretty harsh. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Now, there we go. That's a good measure for your activities. You chose what I did not delight in. Now, there is a standard for making choices today. I've got the option A. I've got option B. One will delight God and, and, and excite God. He'll say, yes, that's my daughter. Yes, that's my son. The other option, well, if I do this, I really don't want to talk to God about it. I really don't want my parents to know or my pastor or my children or, uh, you know, for us older people who have adult children, I'll just kind of keep that from them. Um, uh, you know, things that God does less than delight in. So that's your standard. When you're making a decision, will God delight in this? Will he rejoice that I chose this pathway versus that pathway? Uh, they chose what he did not delight in. Verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord, and here comes the contrast. Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Now, you remember the question in, in, in verse number 12 of the previous chapter? Where are you, Lord? Are you going to forsake us, Lord? And he says, well, actually, um, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart. But you shall cry out for pain of heart. Now, I don't know if, if you feel this way too, but interpersonal stress, when your heart is just broke between you and another person, there's nothing that hurts more uh, at, at many times than when you have this pain of heart. And you shall wail for breaking of spirit. I, I mean, I don't wish physical pain or emotional pain on anyone, but don't diminish emotional pain. When things aren't right between you and someone important in your life, there's no peace, there's no rest, there's no comfort, there's no joy. Uh, this is what they're being committed to eternally here. They shall wail for breaking of spirit. Verse 15, you shall leave a name to my chosen for a curse. Now, my best understanding, if you leave a name to the chosen for a curse, I think that's like Cain, raising Cain. Judas Iscariot, he's such a Judas or as we had in Sunday school today, Jezebel. <laughs> Not many people name their daughters Jezebel. Why? Well, that's a cursed name. 
So um, you shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God shall put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. I, I, I wonder if they weren't blessing themselves by false gods, yeah, you know, um, by the blessings of Baal. I'm going to do this. <laughs> and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. And now we're getting to the center. Remember how I said the, the logic of this, of this argument in this chapter and the next kind of works its way in like nested loops if you're a programmer. It works its way in to the very center, which is verses 17 through 25, and then it works its way back out. So next week, we've got the core of what Isaiah is getting to. Let's just read two verses. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Now we're going to focus on that next week and see what God is doing. Just a couple of applications from verses 11 uh, through 16. Um, God does not allow any room for compromise. To follow cults is to forsake the Lord. In verse 11, forsaking the Lord involves, number one, forgetting his holy mountain. Uh, uh, in other words, no longer attending, I take it to be the assemblies of Jerusalem. And number two, observing pagan rituals to fortune and destiny. Now, the pagan rituals, I mean, uh, this is like if you're out in Breckenridge this month, they probably have their, their, uh, their worship to the snow god, right? And they have a parade in town, and they, they have images of this god, and it's just fun, uh, you know. I, and, and, and I'm sitting there, when I was there years ago, I was like, I can't partake in this. Because in antiquities, this god was a real god, a real Norse god of snow. And I know you've made this cultural, fun, beautiful thing, and you could smell the, the, the foods being grilled and, and all of the festivities in the air. Um, that, 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 I mean, this is part of their culture, to, to give an offering to destiny and fortune. That, that just, that's just something we do for luck. It's just, it's just part of our culture. No. It is pagan. It is forbidden. And so that, that would be uh, one application we could take for this. But the greater application that we would take is that God promises joy to the faithful. He promises judgment to those who harden their hearts. God is writing to his people Israel, more specifically Judah. They were wondering where God was in their separation from him, and he's like, I was here all along. I, I was calling repeatedly with wide open arms to receive you. And a remnant did run to Yahweh. They did love the Lord. But most were following their own imaginations. They were following their own agenda. Uh, things that did not please God. They were doing things that did not delight God. That's a great test, a great measure. Yet they found it in themselves to be arrogant. Is human, humanity not amazing in how arrogant we can be? Thinking ourselves better than somebody else while our hands are full of sin. Our minds are full of thoughts we wouldn't want anybody to know. And yet we think we're a little better than the next guy. These were Pharisees. These were a stench in God's nostrils. Mistaking their sin and their arrogance as a virtue. God promises them judgment. Certain, 
personal, measured, complete, nothing will be missed. And his people would be blessed in the kingdom. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you confessed that you are a sinner like the rest of us? All on a single tier. Wicked sinners who cannot stand in God's judgment, who needed Jesus to come, live righteously on our behalf, die punitively on our behalf, and offer salvation as a gift if we will but trust him. That's a decision you need to make to trust Jesus, to turn from your sin and to trust Jesus. Have you done that? I'm going to give you a moment just to pray silently to the Lord. That's something you can do in silent prayer to God now is confess, I am a sinner, I need Jesus, and I trust Jesus. And then I'll close this in a word of prayer. Let's pray silently. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for even bringing to mind sins, actions, things that I have done that have not been a delight to you. Father, I pray that your word would be fruitful in every heart in this room. I pray, God, that you would change us, cleanse us, help us to walk with you as a remnant, as good grapes in the midst of an evil cluster, trusting, God, that you are going to come and sort us out, and, Father, bring us into your presence for all of eternity. God, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this kingdom, for your people Israel, and that most of us, I believe, in here are Gentiles, that God, we Gentiles get to visit this and be a part of this and get to serve your people in the kingdom and in eternity. God, we look forward to what you have for us to do. Lord, bless us as we continue the study next week. Give us an understanding of your word in Jesus' name.